Hello, welcome to episode 122 of Lunar Poetry Podcast. I'm David Turner. Alright? It's been three months since I last released an episode and you might imagine that there'd be some news or updates for me to give, but... No. Nothing has really been happening. I'm still in the process of finishing what will be my first full-length book of poems. The word poems there has enormous air quotes around it, as they're just getting weirder every time I work on them. And it will be out through Hesterglock Press in 2020. And if you're listening, Paul, my editor at Hesterglock, the manuscript will be with you soon. I promise. What else? I'm learning to play the piano. So lots of practicing scales and trying to teach myself how to play Moondog's elf dance. And I've been making a prototype of a chair this week, so I'm fighting the urge to tell you all about how annoying that's been. And uh, I've been dreaming about how to make the underframe. The life of a joiner, eh? Oh yeah. I, or we, or Lunar Poetry Podcast no longer uses Instagram as it bores me. So in terms of social media, you can find us at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook and at Silent underscore Tongue on Twitter. You can, of course, find lots more information over at LunarPoetryPodcast.com, where you will also find a full transcript of today's episode. This week's guest is Stephen J. Fowler. Stephen is a multidisciplinary artist that works in the muddied waters between poetry, theatre, filmmaking, visual arts and performance. He's also the curator of hundreds of live literature events around the UK and Europe. Stephen appeared in episode 33 of our companion podcast series, A Poem a Week, hosted by my wife Lizzie. In that, Stephen reads his poem, Old Time Wrestles New Time, which doesn't feature in today's episode, and you should definitely check out that recording and the other 70 poets over on Lizzie's series. Links in the episode description, right? Stephen and I met up at his studio around the back of St Pancras Station in a very busy part of London, so apologies in advance about the traffic. I don't think the noises are that intrusive, and also it gives you an insight to the soundtrack of Stephen's creative process. Imagine him sat at a paint-spattered table as the black cabs pass slowly below. We discuss whether work is ever really finished or is it just published so beyond our grasp, whether or not there's any benefit to being ignored as a writer and being content with the way that you work regardless of the advice of others. We also get around to briefly discussing the Nordic Poetry Festival that Stephen is organising this year in the UK, and will take place 11th to 17th of October at various venues. It's going to be fantastic. And I'm lucky enough to be reading in collaboration with Ward Torgerson at Rich Mix, East London, 12th of October. Maybe I'll see you there. If you enjoy this episode or any other, please do help us out by telling friends, family members, work colleagues and squidgy cats. Word of mouth is the best form of advertising for podcasts. Especially this one. And this is not for my benefit, but for the wonderful guests I've had on the series. They deserve to be heard by as many people as possible, right? I'll be back at the end of the episode with an outro, and obviously all the way through. But for the moment, 
is Stephen J. Fowler. Stalker, release, May 25th, 1979, director Andrei Tarkovsky. Unnerving areas of Europe into the possession of Mother Russia, smuggling arguments better in than out. You're in the future with Porcupine and the Monkey. Those animals, they were men. They were novel time, the Strugatsky brothers, who predicted this age of moaning conquered by quiet. At the end of the graphs, with their constant upward line, vast, shrunken numbers of human heads bobbing, with each enough breath for sentiments, with each not quite enough to hear the other. A trickle from the stalker's ears brings attention to the plug that blocks out the sounds you're making until you're living the first day of your life offline in the zone. Thank you very much, Stephen. Welcome to Lunar Poetry Podcast. Thank you for joining me and all the listeners, uh, wherever they are, if indeed they are. Starting interviews is always the most difficult bit. Often I don't know people at all, and this is the first time I'm meeting them, but I know you a little bit now. And it's always a bit of a worry about the initial questions that that flash through my head first always seem a bit inappropriate for people you don't know. Please ask me inappropriate questions. It's not even inappropriate. I know you well enough to feel that you're resilient to any of these questions anyway. But my question, I wanted it to be, why all the nonsense? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but feel that that question is not really about poetry. <laughs> it's about something wider. Possibly, all... but I felt it was a good inroad into the wider aspects of your work. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I suppose my instinct that might answer the actual question that you've posed would be to, to ask why you would ask that question. Not to say that I can psychologically analyse why you did it, um, because I, knowing you a little bit too, would imagine that it comes from your own sense of intrigue and your own engagement with the notion of a non-sense. But also, any time anyone has ever asked me a question, unfortunately, because I am painfully sober and hyper-aware, I tend to think first, why are they asking me about the nonsense when they're the ones bringing the nonsense to the table? Maybe that is the answer to your question. But I, I think to compress uh, nearly a decade of... Um, careful and unfortunate consideration around my work into the answer of a a genuinely important and good question that you've just posed me. Um, I think that the brain where my existence resides is full of nonsense and that the notion that I can control the universe's experience which is endlessly difficult and confusing into a kind of sense beyond just the limits of communicating would be arrogant and maybe stupid, which I am both at times, but try not to be. And given that I consider poetry to be the language art and we communicate in language, I try to use poetry for something other than communication. And it seems like it's probably more useful then to utilize it for things that are not the sense of talking. Yeah, it's interesting. I think out of the hundreds of people we've had on the podcast now, I would say that by far the majority of you is that poetry is an act of communication and it's really interesting to talk to someone that believes the opposite of that yeah yeah i mean i suppose for me it would depend what what we mean by both the word poetry and the word communication right so i mean it, it does communicate something but so does me falling over i mean all things communicate something 
I think this is about the notion of intention for me. All I'm, I suppose, trying to say is that if a poem could, if the meaning of a poem can be done in a conversation, it's a failure. And most poems are a bit like that, no? I mean, most poems are communicating something similar to a conversation. And that, to me, is valid if done with great skill or in a certain tradition. I find it fascinating and interesting. But just personally, as a person who makes things, I don't find that very interesting. I feel these uh, kind of qualifications that I always give are a bit redundant now. But just so we feel a bit more relaxed in the conversation, neither of us are projecting our own thoughts onto what other writers should do. I'd like for everyone to feel, I say everyone, including listeners in here, but to feel like they can talk about their own work without having to, oh, but I, I don't mean other people should follow these routes and blah, blah, blah. Because yeah. I, I often find myself talking about my own work and excusing my, in some way, other people don't have to follow the way I think. Yeah. Do you feel that that's an issue in general around the way poets interact? I think that's an issue around all human beings and, and culture in general. For example, a lot of time when people tell me, God, isn't poetry quite, um, I don't know, competitive or tribal? And I always say, compared to what? I mean, I've never done a job where people didn't talk shop. Mm. I've never done a job where people didn't slight others who do it because they do it slightly different than them. I take it as like just a human condition. I don't think that the things that I think about do put other people down for a variety of reasons, but the main reason being that I think that my ideas or interests seem to operate on a slightly different um, lower level than other people actually, not higher level. So I think people have, have a very refined engagement with the idea of literary criticism and how poetry works, whereas I'm tried to be a bit less theoretical and more instinctual. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in, for example, the idea of authenticity, which is a silly and ambiguous idea, but it's instinctual. So if I see someone who's doing, say, a spoken word poem, which a lot of people have associated me with being against spoken word, because there are certain elements around its methodology which are so far away from what I do that they assume so. Well, actually, if someone is authentic in what they're doing, it, I don't really care whether they're doing spoken word, ballet, cooking, flying a kite. I mean, that's attractive. It's beautiful and it's exciting and it generates things for me to do. But if someone is working within a tradition and isn't authentic, and I'm just using authentic as one of many criteria, then I just move on immediately to the things that do excite me. I don't spend any time being negative or critical. So I think that is why sometimes I think people take certain things that I say as critical against other practices because we're working in different conditions. And also I do say that a lot exactly as you've described when I say something positive, I'm not trying to put other people down. It's because I want to be polite. Mm -hmm. I really, really believe in that. For example, I've always refused criticism. I've never written an article of criticism for money because if I take money and do a job of work and I don't like something, I'm going to have to lay into it. And I'm going to have to do that by mentioning someone's names. And life is short. I have no interest in that at all. Uh, yeah. I got into making the podcast. So I started writing reviews of live events for what was then Lunar Poetry Magazine. I had to stop because I felt, if I'm going to be really honest, and it wasn't that I hated everything that I saw, but I felt if I'm going to be honest about things, it's going to be too blunt. And there wasn't, I just didn't see the point in doing it. And what I really wanted to do was have a conversation about people with their work instead of meet them face to face and actually talk over ideas. Well, I think it's actually a failure in me that I won't do it because I see that, that negative criticism should be out there, especially at the moment. 
some people need to take responsibility for the the space of how things are made and certain trends of thought and critical spaces so i'm not advocating this as a position it's actually a very personal thing and it's an enormous failure i'm i'm i'm, I'm a coward because the previous jobs i had before were so combative and so volatile and were constantly engaged in conflict and i enjoyed them i'm i'm a conflict orientated person whether it's because of something that happened to me or whatever that's the case so i don't want any conflict now um that's my choice poetry for me literature in general making art and stuff is a life of putting ideas out that will conflict with other people's ideas but it doesn't it's not personal to me i don't care so i do think people should be highly critical and i like it when people are critical of my work i love it in fact because i don't really i don't really mind i mean actually i take that as a huge compliment but i don't think my work has become widely widely understood enough that people can be critical of it i think they just think i don't get it and yeah. then they leave it and that suits me also super fine because i don't really care that brings me to two points actually if we go back the point you made about believing that your work is sort of occupies almost a slightly lower position than more refined taste one of the reasons i mentioned the word nonsense because i wanted to get to talking about the idea of playing as well yeah. you're talking a lot about what you mentioned a bit about sort of how serious people are about the way they view their work and how it becomes more refined more and more refined it seems with within that process there's less space to play and it seems really important in your work especially your latest book with Hester Got Press uh, memoirs of a hypocrite maybe just talk a bit about how freeing yourself up to work is a starting point yeah I mean it's something I thought about so much uh Thank you for the, for the generous question. It, it comes from, hopefully not waffling, but it comes from how I got into poetry. I discovered it quite, I mean, later than a lot of my peers in my mid-twenties, about 10 years ago. And I discovered everything at the same time. So I did spend a lot of time engaged with the theorizing around it and trying to read back. But I was discovering kind of all kinds of poetry immediately. There is a massive absence of certain should we say, bands of aesthetics in poetry. For example, genuinely funny poetry is almost impossible. Comic poetry isn't funny. It's funny in a, in a really unfunny way. <laughs> and um, negative aesthetics don't exist in poetry. You know, what's the equivalent of a horror film for poetry? Have you ever got to a poem that's deliberately trying to make you feel upset? Not to inculcate the emotion of sorrow, <laughs> but make you feel bad, I mean, as a pleasure. Yeah. You never get it. And it doesn't make any sense because poetry is just a means. It's a, a refraction of language. It's a mulching through, just like shooting a camera or making a sculpture. So, I mean, I was always intrigued by that. And I really think a lot of it is kind of the constipation of theory, you know. There's so much theoretical underpinning that goes around poetry. And that's, all, that's, that's important in many ways. But what I found is it creates a culture of people who are afraid to do certain things. Um, they're afraid to look silly or be silly or play or make mistakes, or be rough, or messy. My work is engaged fundamentally in ideas that I hope are really complex, but I hope they're complex in a way that everyone could understand, because existence is complex for every reflexive mammal. Every human being, every single animal, lives a complex existence, and we can do that without alienating people theoretically. So I think that that's how I started to find a road into it, that a lot of the things people had done to give their work a kind of uh, intelligence stilts to put it up in the air had actually put it into a place that most people couldn't reach. 
And the problem is then people conflate that with accessibility or they conflate it with the ivory tower argument or class. And that really frustrates me. And it's actually only being a teacher in, in creative writing and, and teaching in, in different institutions where I've realized and formulated an antidote to that, I think. Trying to teach students who are often from a working class background why sound poetry or concrete poetry or avant-garde poetry is good requires you to create arguments of purpose for your own work. So that's given me, yeah, a great gift, teaching other people why I think the things I do are important, although not ever teaching my own work, of course, because I'm not a dweeb. <laughs> it resonates there that you talk about class and such. When I got first back into writing in my early 30s, having spent 10 to 12 years working with performance and visual artists as a technician but also a producer, I found that suddenly all these barriers that I'd broken down as a, someone from a working class background and no formal academic qualifications in any, any subject and as regular listeners will know I served a joinery apprenticeship and then ended up getting back into the arts that way. It took me a long time within these art settings to, to shake off a lot of this art, uh, this class bullshit I carry around with me. I mean it's very real bullshit but it's bullshit nonetheless. And I shook it off and I got to working with some really amazing performance artists and we did some really wild stuff and you just sort of, and you, and you realise that those things are for you if you want to go out and take them. But as soon as I started writing again, I felt pressure and I could feel myself moving towards more, like we're saying, more refined types of writing, perhaps probably subconsciously trying to prove myself in some way. And it took a couple of years to think, well, no, I, could, I can play with this writing as much as I did with visual stuff and more physical stuff. And now a lot of the, my, I suppose my focus with the podcast is trying to show people from similar backgrounds as myself that these other weirder types of poetry or more odd types of poetry are equally accessible to anyone. It's just, it seems to be for a long time that, section of writing has been owned and controlled by people that have been sort of deliberately putting up barriers. You've been around this, the literary scene longer than I have and you're and a bit more knowledgeable on the history of it. So I'd be interested to know whether that, if I was to say to you I felt like there were barriers, class barriers towards more avant-garde and experimental writing in this country, mm. would you argue that that is, that I'm wrong in that? Yeah, well I think you know we both share maybe a background that's atypical for people involved, especially in more experimental poetry. Mm. But I think that fundamentally, this is again about the level of analysis. What you're saying is practically true, but I don't really think about it. I create things that do the opposite mm. rather than lamenting situations I've been in where I know people deliberately misunderstand me to further their own agenda which probably comes from certain class experiences that they've had so I prefer to talk about like life experience or work you know and I think that I've definitely been in environments where I've been alienated and ostracized because my concerns and interests shall we say uh, physical violence people seem disgusted by the idea that it exists mm. you know they're more offended by the idea that I might bring up um, physical fights than the actual fact that they're happening down the road from where those people live, just they never see them because they've lived a different kind of life. 
and just sometimes I felt like people are against me mentioning them because they think the mention of them is an advocation for them, which is insane because I've witnessed and been around more violence and seen its terrible consequences or like my, the constant presence of prisons in my work or things like that, you know. And I understand that that's, that's probably to do with, your, with what you're saying, right? To do with class yes, yeah. and class concerns. But I don't care about that. It doesn't bother me none. I've had no one against me. I've had no one really try to ostracize me. I've been embraced by 90% of the people I've met and the other 10% have just ignored me, which I take to be quite a nice way to respond to someone who you don't like or whose work you don't <laughs> like. So, yeah, I mean, it's probably true, but actually I'm really, really, really engaged with the notion of finding every single kind of person I can who's got an open spirit and soul and creates authentic, interesting work and trying to offer them opportunities and spaces to share what I've found and be part of. And some of those people are from really, really privileged backgrounds and some are from really working class backgrounds. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely think you're right. And if I was into that kind of discussion, I'd go super deep on that. But I'm not. No, I'm no, really no. not. I kind of refuse all those things. I'm not saying that you were saying that, but it's definitely been an experience of mine, but it doesn't really matter. Your experience probably echoes mine as well, but I wonder whether a lot of that is to do with luck. I, my early, When I first started to really seek out more experimental stuff, uh, Lizzie and I just moved to Bristol, so I found Anathema and Paul Hawkins in Bristol. And then coming back, to, or but before that, I'd been to a reading and met Isabel Weidner, and then come across your work and all of these people yeah. are, couldn't be more welcoming. You know, I'm still examining why I felt like there were barriers because just about all of my experiences have proven the concerns weren't as large as they, as they had been in my head. I think you're right, though. And you've mentioned two amazing human beings and brilliant writers, mm. Paul Hawkins and Isabel Weidner. Both, both people are very much concerned with what you're saying. And I've learned a lot from speaking to both of them about their experiences. I suppose without sounding a bit stupid again that I assume there's always going to be barriers like I assume I'm going to have a barrier because there's barriers between humans all the time I've never been in any situation ever where there hasn't been a barrier if I wanted to find one and at the end of the day I suppose again not really about poetry but about life in general I just want to make things I just want to do things because I suppose my first couple of years in poetry were ma surrounded by people who were massively theoretical. I mean, as theoretical as you can get. And I found that fascinating and I learned a lot. And I realized also that it led to a lot of bitterness for some of them. And it also, others never really did anything. And so I suppose my whole events curatorial practice was based around the idea that I was like, oh, I see that there is an absence of something. How about I do it? And then here we go. And then you find out there's some other problem. And that's with those people, you know, no disrespect to them, but it's just a way of being in the world. And I'm so lucky. I mean, I, my body is healthy. My mind is clear. I'm surrounded by genuine warmth and positivity and I have lots of opportunities. I'm not trying to sound super positive. I'm not that positive as a person, but that is a fact. I've got no complaints at all about, yeah, like class boundaries and things like that. You mentioned a couple of times your um, curatorial practice. But we'll come on to that in a minute because that's quite that's vast enough on its own. Thank you. Um, you've mentioned a couple of times now about people not liking your work and them ignoring you, and you actually not minding that. Um, I wanted to ask, what are the benefits of being ignored as a writer? Yeah. So again, without being too overly analytical, um, 
one has to think through what it means to be ignored. Is there some world out there where people aren't being ignored? Um, everyone, to a certain extent, is being ignored. There are people, I think you've had Raymond Antrobus on your podcast, who's just had an incredible success with Pending the Margins, who published one of my books back in the day. And that is just joy for everyone. You know, a good human being writing good work. The the rising tides lift all people. So there are examples like with Raymond, whereby mad success can then be compared to yourself. And you're like, wow, I'm being ignored. But how many Raymond Antrobus success stories are there? There's like a couple a year. So a big thing for me that I learned this from is, is prize culture, literary prize culture. I never thought I would ever be for a prize, really, because my work's too strange. So I began from a, a perspective where I was like, well, I would be the first ever who would be successful with prizes writing weird work. But then I noticed a lot of my peers who maybe had started earlier or had different opinions. It would hurt their feelings every year. Every year they would felt snubbed. And I would always say there's only one person who gets it. Only one person gets it. Of all the things that could happen, I mean, this is, should not affect you. I mean, I've definitely witnessed it. See people release less books, do less things, move in a certain way. And I understand that. I do understand it. But it's those that kind of things that then start to make me understand a clearer view of what is it being ignored and what is not being ignored. I suppose if we were being uh, colloquial and generalized, you could say that my work has never really gone into a a middle space, uh, a Guardian review page type press. That's my fault. I've published too much. My work is too weird. I probably don't edit my work well enough. I pro- blah, blah. I probably do many too, too many things at once. I've just come to accept that's an authentic expression of my way of making work. At the same time, I've made a living from it. I've traveled around the world. I've worked with incredible people. I've gotten on with 90% of the people that I've met, and I've met a lot of people through it. I have also completely not been ignored at all. So what I'm trying to say is that the first things first about being ignored and not being ignored is an ego thing. It's a subjective thing. If you feel bad on one day because you got rejected from a thing, you feel like you're not appreciated. That's a, again, it's a human condition. It can be mastered. So I don't feel that very much. But what I do think is that if you lie in like a fallow space, a middle space where people don't quite know what you're doing, they're not quite sure what you mean, you have the opportunity to constantly reinvent the joy of making things, writing things. I get enough attention that I'm constantly busy and engaged and doing lovely things like this. Thanks again for asking me, by the way. But then I also, I'm not under brutal scrutiny or the pressure to sell books. And last year alone, I was making a film. I made a, a feature-length film with my friend Joshua Alexander called The Animal Drums, and we were, we've got Ian Sinclair in it. And Ian Sinclair's obviously this, you know, he's a legend. He kind of invented this geographical writing, brilliant poet, one of the most important poets of the British Poetry Revival, um, has been incredibly generous to me, a, a, like a, an incredibly supportive presence. We were talking just offhandedly before we started filming, and he said to me, you should always take note of how lucky you are that you can write whatever you like. You're free. You don't have a press telling you that's too strange, that's too weird. My editors support my gestures. They help me edit, but they give me freedom. So that the joy of not being super commercially successful is that I'm creatively free. Um, and that is, if you can appreciate it, an incredible gift. To your point about prize culture especially, it's very understandable why people would get jealous or bitter for not winning these things and you can see easily why a new writer 
looking forward may aspire to that as a marker of success which is a shame because it can only let you down you know like you said there's only going to be one winner of each prize and who knows how these things are being judged of course then if you do have that kind of success I mean what kind of pressure does that put on you to produce similar type of work you know does that push you down one avenue I was hoping for that question to lead in this direction to be able to talk about freedom within your writing because it seems like again going back to this, the opening question about nonsense and then leading on to play and this idea of freedom it, you feel like one of the freest writers that I know I, re- I think the reason I feel that is because you don't feel tied to writing and so many people are bound not only to, that I know not only bound to writing they're bound to poetry which seems like a a terrible curse on someone you know I know some people are genuinely that focused and that directed but it seems a very narrow space to live in well I don't want to get pretentious or too deep but I understand that if someone is engaged say in the profession of writing with fiction it makes a lot more sense than poetry but there's some of the guidelines would be like if I get a prize then I get a better publisher I'll sell more books and I'll be able to write more books and I won't have to work in a shop and I think not only does that make sense that that's kind of brilliant because it's truthful but again hopefully I don't sound silly genuinely genuinely my work is about me finding a path towards contentedness and gentility and decency towards other people it's not the main reason it's just a wee part of it I mean what I eat and how I exercise and how I sleep and the people I spend my time with these are all nodes in a in a genuine daily commitment to try and have a better existence just because I want to be happy before I die because I'm going to die really soon relatively and so if I then only wrote in Times New Roman 12 point font and indented even though I had the desire to handwrite a book say that would be really weird because there's no comeback on that I mean there's only so much you can get Uh, to your point I've known people who've been mad successful hugely commercially successful I had the privilege of collaborating with some people who were hugely successful and happiness is relative I think a lot about the concept of tolerance. I'm writing a book at the moment about prescription drugs and a brain, and I've been thinking a lot about the word tolerance. You tolerate joy, and it wears off. Your success goes. Everything goes. You get used to everything. And so to a certain extent with me, I just try and keep my guideline as these deeper ideas, like intuition and instinct and exploration and innovation and these these silly words that sound like a car advert... They are actually the driving force behind why we start doing all of this. So how do we keep that light alive? It's by, if that's who we are, if that's what our authentic expression of things is, and it is mine because I'm brutally impatient and and I want to discover new things and I want to meet new people and I want to live a good life through this work. Well, that's going to lead me to do a lot of different kinds of work, as you say, not limit myself and not worry if someone says to me in my ear, which they have done pretty consistently, don't publish more than a book a year or you can never be with me or don't organize events as well as uh, publish because then people will think that you're just trying to promote your own don't do- yeah all right i hear what you're saying uh you're scared and that's fine i'm just going to do what i'm going to do and people will either be with it or they won't be with it and I th- yeah i hope they're with it because that's i'd rather have if someone's a dog i'd rather have them as a friend than an enemy that's a the perfect time to go into a second reading, I think. Um, well, I might read something from my brand new book, actually, that I'm writing at the moment, um, which is due to come out 
in 2020 with Dostoevsky wannabe press um, who published Isabel Weidner and a lot of amazing people like Colin Hurd. Fantastic publishers. Just a brilliant publisher, yeah, based in Manchester. And they are publishing a book of mine called I Will Show You the Life of the Mind on Prescription Drugs. Uh, And that that book is a result of a a residency I did at the Wellcome Trust um, and a lot of explorations in a field that I've kind of coined the name neuropoetics. So it's like neuroaesthetics, but it's about how language functions in the brain and how we might utilize language arts as a way of exploring brain function. Side effects of citalopram, otherwise known as old the dark. You lean over an old piece of wood and ask, remember me? Can you raise the dead, it replies. Everyone is telling every way so tender in danger, the gathered analogue of patience. There's the weight, the rest approaching, making things to eat that aren't to eat. It's Blackwood, mine moved. Paroxetine, otherwise known as the light switch, otherwise known as the war vet, otherwise known as the gypsy's curse. Goodbye, love. A master of the subtle art stuffing a map upon a toilet you will use. We were once in love, we understood beauty. We didn't like how they surrounded us and we could understand them. Even lucidity has its limits. I love how they call people love when they get angry. I love goodbye, love. Perhaps we can put time in rice. But expecting worse, keep jolting, what will grievance be? These ashes have tempted those millions. How many of us can look stupid at once? How irrelevant can replying to emails seem? I'm bad advice. To know how to defend oneself. To visit a zoological museum for this advice. To look at bacon, look at the foxcatcher, look at your disrespect of living... Look at the company called Wind. Look at a better lifestyle in Spain. I delete my accidental screenshots. I am, to some, stopped away, but today, as though in history, that information I keep worrying about, quite moderate. And I keep kicking and kicking, thinking where in the world has all this gone? Maybe it's good. I wish I was you with me. The history of our way, our guidelines for use, our worry, our conditions for treating others like wounds evaporates. Holiday places where I have a security deal. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Because you've read new work there and you're talking about a book that you're working on, which seems like a state that you're constantly in anyway. I could probably ask it to you any any day, but what... What are your feelings around the idea of finishing something? Yeah, something I thought about a lot. Thank you. Thank you again for asking a question that's on my mind often. I think because I like this notion of constant work, like I enjoy the idea of being prolific because it's it's just the way that my brain functions. It's the way that I'm motivated. I have maybe a different relationship to the notion of the finished poem or the finished fiction or the finished anything. I like it when context decides the content. I like it when 
the deadline is the time it's finished. I like it when the editor decides. I've had lots of experience with presses and they have been almost 100% positive. Like I have great relationships with people I've worked with at presses even though I've worked with lots of different ones. And when an editor comes in and rips things to shreds, they think I'm going to be upset about it, but I love it. I love it. I mean, I can choose to reject or accept, but a lot of the time I accept because that means it's finished. They've come in and they've engaged in it in a way that makes it something else, you know? That's a very good good way of looking at it. So for me, like the notion of the finished work is maybe slightly different than a lot of people's who I know that a huge part of their poetry is this dichotomy, this split. And again, I speak to my students a lot about this between the draft and the final version. And it's something that people tinker with with the capitalization of certain words and the play play of things. I just had a, a collaborative poem with um, with Max Porter, who's an amazing writer, taken for Poetry Magazine in America. And their editing is incredibly finite, almost to the point where I was laughing really loud because every single time you send something back with their corrections, they send like, what about this comma? Can we spell it the American word for labor without the U? And I was just like, whatever you like was my response. Whatever it suits you, I don't care. I know it does matter a lot to other poets, and I know why it does, but it doesn't matter to me. American spelling of labor or English spelling of labor? I don't care. <laughs> why do I care? I mean, that doesn't, that's not why I wrote it, and I'm not fussed about that at all. So maybe I have a more transitional view of what finished is than other people. The finished bit is the one in the latest book. It's on the page. I'm not working on it anymore. It's obviously done. What about you? What do you think? It's interesting. I find my writing is a place to exist further from higher standards. So as a furniture maker, I have a very defined idea of what finished means because finished means a point at which someone is going to enjoy what I've made and they have to live with it and it has to be durable, it has to look right. There are a number of fluctuating criteria, but they're all very high standards each of these criteria people are paying a lot of money for the furniture we make yeah we've been doing this for 20 years now i like to think i'm good at it of course you know and and what what i make i'm hoping will people can pass down through generations etc etc i don't want that to exist in any other part of my life those stand it's really exhausting very tiring and i like that my writing is an escape from that and i share your view that well, you didn't quite mention it, but I think we're probably going down the same path here. But once something's on a page, I'm free of it. Yeah. And I don't have to go back to it. I find the overwhelming relief that it's gone and done far outweighs if I ever find a mistake in something. If I ever do read over something, I think, oh, shit, that wasn't right, or I should have changed that. The relief that it's gone and out of my mind is, outweighs any worry that I would have about sort of regretting anything that I chose to do. One of the weirdest things I've found is that the books that I, some of the books I edited least, I think my favourite book I've ever written is called Minimum Security Prison Dentistry. It was published by Colin Hood's Anything, Anymore, Anywhere Press. And he, he asked me, do I have a book? It's 2011, and it was my first year, just finished my first year in poetry, and I'd published two other full-length books that year, which ruined me forever, basically, because you should never do that. Your debut <laughs> book should be important. I was just like, oh, yeah, whatever. And uh, I was like, oh, I've got this different stuff, and i mashed it together I sent it to him I love it oh I love it like any mistakes of it the aberrations it's the best thing I've done and that was a huge lesson to me because the other book I did that year with Nice Forks and Spoons Red Museum I mean that's one of only two books I've done where I I might do another version one day where I'll go in and mash it up Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's a big thing to me. Like, I don't have set rules or patterns for things. It's an adaptable process. You finish certain books and whatever the mysterious process is that took you to making them, especially a poetry collection or a poetry book, because they're really weirdly constructed when you think about them. The order, you know, people never talk about that. I spend weeks on order. I'm like, well, that follows that. And what, four people read the book and then they don't even read it cover to cover. They like pick it up yeah, and like yeah. page 67. Oh, that's yeah, good. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but that follows the poem about the egg and that's the bacon poem. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So there's this stupid process that's mystical and strange. And I've just learned to embrace that. And as you say, then when your book comes out, you've got it on the page, you open it. You don't know how you're going to feel. And that changes mood to mood, day to day, year to year. And I just reserve the right that I can go back in and meddle with things if I want. But most of the time I don't because I've got a new idea. These things are at the forefront of my mind at the moment because I'm currently, I'm, well, I'm getting to the, bit, uh, the point where I have finished my first book, which will come out with Hester Glock. Um, Congratulations and a great press. Yeah, really good press. I'm asking myself exactly the same questions. Do I spend endless amounts of evenings after work ordering these poems or do I think... Well, people aren't probably aren't going to notice, you know. But I suppose the question is, you've got to do whatever makes you happy in the moment. Exactly. What I would like to try and achieve is some way of what I like about shorter projects and pamphlets and stuff, which we've done. I've done a couple with other people, is that they feel like they exist more in the moment because they're fast. You can finish them faster, and you can get them out more readily, and they sort of come out fairly quickly after they're written. Whereas what's coming out for me with Hester Glock has taken a much longer time to write and it spans a longer amount of time. It feels a bit like things are being shoehorned together a little bit. Yeah. I think that is just what those types of books are often. I think I've changed so much with that, but I do think about it a lot. I mean, it's a good time to have good friends. Yes. I yeah. always am pitching off stuff to people, especially people who are not involved in poetry at mm. all or even literature and just say, what do you think of this? And if you get like really negative stuff back, you know you're on the right track. And I think also that this is, can be expanded metaphorically about the notion of publishing a book in general, you know. I mean, the amount of people that I've known also, not to say that all my friends are negative, like I said, with the prizes and that, but who are disappointed by the reception of their book and why maybe it's good to have pamphlets before that. But I had that. I had a crisis of the book and and what it was and what the point was. And uh, I had a really profound experience with a book called Anselm Hollow, who was like the anti-laureate of America and it just... It, lived the most amazing life. He left Finland during just after the Second World War to live in Germany, then lived here in the 60s and 70s, then moved to America. And I put on the last ever reading that he gave before he died. And I read every single one of his published books after he died. And I felt myself powerfully in them, where he was, what he did. And I realized then that his authentic expression of publishing a massive bibliography was even if it was just me reading it, a profound and powerful, physical, ambiguous expression and legacy. And then I realized, wait a minute, that I want that. I want that. Thomas Shalaman, another person, he's got 45 books he published in his life and has his library in Ljubljana. And I've been there and looked through his books and spent days reading them. And you can read a person's life through their work that way. And then I suddenly realized, like Bob, it's all right to publish two books a year if you want every year. I mean, yeah, I mean, a thousand people won't read them. Who cares? I mean, who cares? You can't be there when people read them anyway. Something I say to my students a lot, you're in a job whereby the best moments that your work will create for other people, you won't witness them. Yeah. 
It'd just be some professional critic in The Guardian with an ideological uh, purpose writing reviews whether they like you or don't like you as a person or have heard about you or met you. But the actual people who read your work, you never know. So do it for other motivations. So, yeah, I think about those questions a lot. Since you mentioned putting on Anselm's uh, final reading in this mm. country, this is probably a good op- opportunity to start talking about the curatorial work and the events that you put on. If you could just give a quick, very brief breakdown of what event, what types of events you run and how they run, and then I've got a couple of questions we can follow on from that. Sure, but, yeah. yeah, no worries. So I basically started about 10 years ago a project called Enemies that was about collaboration, essentially. But it was also a way to kind of Trojan horse experimentation into live readings because I found a traditional salon-orientated reading to be you know, pretty unsatisfying and uninterrogated. And I think 90% of people agree, and I think of the shopping lists and... You know, we all know this kind of stuff. I don't need to go on about that. So really it was about internationalism and collaboration, trying to get people from different countries to come to England, work with the British poets. And then that kind of grew and I started doing tours and started going to other countries to do collaborations. And that was an amazing way to navigate the universe and to work with other people. And then I started a project called Poem Brew, maybe two or three years ago, which is about um, material, and about, I suppose, a lot of the things we've already talked about, context and content, experimentation, mess, uh, things being handmade, things being physical, the physical, you know, one of the constituent elements of any reading or performance is, is, is proximity, is physical space, three dimensions. That's what Poem Brew is about, as well as about uh, cognitive differences. And the enemies then evolved into the European Poetry Festival, which is a concentration of that kind of collaborative European energy in London. I've done loads of commission events loads and loads of events where people have asked me to come in and start series or start um, themed live literature things. So, yeah, it's been a massive, expansive part of my practice, really. What I found interesting about all of these different events you put on, and it's probably quite a selfish view because I run the podcast and blah, 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 but it's interesting the amount of documentation that goes into it as well these are very successful and well attended live events but there also seems a a real emphasis on filming stuff recording stuff getting stuff locked down and preserved in some sort of way as preserved as digital media can be we won't get into the ephemeral nature of all that stuff but i just wanted to ask how important legacy is in your work and if it's different for the curatorial side of your practice and your own writing for my own writing i still think i'm too early into it to understand ideas like that i mean i'm maybe i slightly mentioned that with the anselm hollow anecdote and why i publish a lot of books i don't envision a moment when my work will be useful or important to the people in the future i'm pretty sure it resolutely will stay about where it is now and i don't i really try not to care either way with the events actually i document for two reasons one is because i really like theoretically want to embrace their transitory nature and i think as you say by acknowledging the limitations of documentation that they are like fundamentally simulacrous shadows of the live thing it's more of a way of giving the poets and artists who are engaged with it like a note of respect like here's a, a little thing that that's that has recorded what you've done and you can use it to navigate the modern world of being a poet or an artist and also a kind of engagement with professionalism 
But really, the most important thing is because I resist all critical theorization around my events. Like I've turned down conferences on my events. I've turned down reviews, articles. If you scour the internet, the six, 700 events I've done, you won't find many reports because when people ask me, I say, no, thanks. They're not utopian. I'm against utopian ideas. They lead to disappointment. It's a transitory thing. It's in time. We get together. We have a nice evening. We do some interesting things. We support each other. We do challenging work. And then, and then it's Tuesday. I don't care. <laughs> I don't. The videos are precisely there, frozen in time, because there is no theoretical underpinning to the events in in, in anything but a more like colloquial, professional way. And I also, when I started, I had a couple of experiences with people who told me. For example, if I, when I discovered the work of Tom Rayworth, it was very important to me, I scoured the internet for videos, for recordings, didn't find that many. And then I'd meet people who, who know, knew him very well before he passed away and be like, oh yeah, I've got a, a box of recordings. And then you go and it's disintegrated. Um, so recently my, my YouTube archive, which is like, yeah, I don't know what it is, about 2000 videos or something. The National Poetry Library are going to put it in their collection oh, and excellent. have it there yeah, for the future. And that's lovely. That is a legacy. I don't care though, really. It's just it's just the way it is. I don't think I don't think it's a legacy is a bit of a weighted word. Yeah. I don't quite mean that. I just um, I'm really struggling for an no, alternative. But it, it seems as though resides very much in my mind as well. I couldn't really care less where my work sits or how it ends up. Right, right. But the work I do with the podcast, I'm very very engaged with. Say, preserving it in perhaps preservation is a better word than legacy. Yeah, yeah. Preserving uh, some sort of document of what you've done primarily the voices of the people that have been involved in the, the events rather than yourself Absolutely. which is what i'm trying to do with the podcast well i think that's great i mean i when i followed your podcast and congratulations on on what you've done with the podcast as much, well yeah. and, and the longevity of it because that's a huge constituent factor of these kind of things so people start them yes they do 30 and they're like i'm not getting any feedback i'm not yeah, getting yeah. any vibe i'm gonna leave it and in a way that's what i mean by saying i take the youtube videos and i think oh, maybe David will take this as an act of respect that I re recorded his mm -hmm. work and put it online in a resource which he can access and it makes him feel good about doing yes. my event or engage. And, that, and that's where I stop thinking mm -hmm. because that allows me to keep doing it every time as a practice, as a way of... Whereas if I was thinking, I am going to record the finest voices of my generation and put them on a YouTube channel, then I would perhaps be like, oh, I haven't, I haven't moved the needle in terms of contemporary <laughs> literature. Why are they not speaking about me on the bookseller <laughs> 10 years later? You know, I don't care about that. Yeah. And so I think that that's a big part of it is that I want my events to be it's an ambulance, a London ambulance, <laughs> not for us. Um, I want my events to be, yeah, transitory and to engage in that. But I like being seen as a professional as well as an artist, a work, a work, someone who works at what they do and develops yeah. it, as I think you do too. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time trying to shake that off, but I've had to embrace it. Like I think it's an unnecessary uh, uh, yoke that I carry with me, feeling like I need to prove to everyone I'm working hard. Yeah. Um, and visibly work hard, because you can't, unless you're going to work, sit in a shop window at your desk and write, and yeah. everyone watching you, people won't... This is what I find strange about Creative Pursuits. People, it's very seldom that you're seen to be working. Yes. And I was very guilty when I first started the podcast that I was trying to visibly put out a lot of stuff. And not really for my own promotion. It was just I really wanted to promote other people's work. But I felt like it, it became exhausting because I, it was slightly for the wrong reasons. And then once I uh, readdressed that, 
or once I addressed that and rebalanced it, it was I had a much healthier relationship to the whole thing. Oh, that's interesting. And I found, that, similarly to what you're saying, once I, I had to find a f- set a few ground ground rules which allowed me to say that's out now, and it's gone and it's done. Yeah. And I can't sit around waiting to see whether. I'm increasing listener figures for this episode yes. and whether I'm making inroads into possibly selling advertising. You know, once I let go of all of that, because go back to your earlier point, I wanted to do this to be content. I don't want to do it and be unhappy because I'm striving for things that are unattainable. Exactly. You know? I want to have the conversation and then make it as accessible in terms of uh, points that people can interact with it. As, yeah, you know? I think about this a lot. Mm. Like, how do we get this balance? Because there is meaning in work. You know, a lot of people aspire to to be free of that kind of stuff. And that was my goal. Like, I wanted to use this pursuit to not have to work a nine-to-five job because I was doing that for the first seven years of my writing. It was only three or four years ago. I stopped doing that kind of work. And now I teach, which some people see as a real hard grind. But at uni teaching, I've, I've had great joy doing it. It's a great, great privilege for me to do it. And I think about that a lot too, like this constant pressure. Is that why I do so much? Mm. You know, I think that in my head all the time. Is it because I feel guilty that I get to write a lot? Um, actually, no. I mean, that's not, it's not the reason. But I've had to spend a lot of time thinking about it because there's clearly value and meaning in working hard yeah. and having that mentality of grinding. I love that. I love that kind of feeling when you're making something and you're in it. Yeah. But I've also had brutal suspicion and maybe one or two fallouts with people who perceive their artistic practice as some sort of grind. And I'm like, it's not a grind. Oh my God. If you yeah. think that you're a miner, you know. I used to work in a bronze foundry. I used to pour bronze. <laughs> right? And since then, I, was, I haven't mind about any job. Yeah. Right? That was that was grafting. That yeah. was grafting. And I think, and it's not that, and uh, you know, it's not to take away from the amount of effort that people put into things. Absolutely. But I think people ha- definitely have a skewed idea of what some people have to do for a living. Yes. And the amount it takes out of them. Yes. You know, and Agreed. there are some there are some poor fuckers who, like I said, they are yeah. in the in the ground. <laughs> yes. For yeah, their whole working life. Exactly. Know? My family's family of paramedics and nurses, soldiers, teachers. I've labored, I've yeah. worked on the doors. Yeah. You know, like everyone has it hard. And I think that includes artists and poets because it's all relative. Mm-hmm. But my feeling is if you're not suspicious about what you do, unless it's really hard, then you've missed the trick, like in your soul. Yeah, yeah. Because if you're a nurse working double shifts, you don't have to worry about this question. Because yep. you are just under unbelievable pressure. But if you've got that mentality and you're a writer, you're like, oh, no, you know, I'm melancholy because I sit in all day and I don't do anything and oh, I'm writing another book that no one reads. That's a fair suspicion. There's nothing wrong with that. But saying it out loud <laughs> <laughs> or like living that lifestyle, like you've got it tough. I don't know. It, maybe because I have done jobs where I felt like I was drowning constantly. Yeah. It makes me feel a bit queasy. I've got to be honest. I've got a bit of an ethical problem with that because I just think, and this is a huge huge constituent of my work, actually, is the notion of perspective. I'm re- I really think about that a lot. That's why I like my work, having this strange kind of feeling of menace and confusion because I want people to at least have a moment where if they don't understand it, it creates a kind of perspective of what they do understand. Maybe that's a good function of my mm. work. I think about that all the time. If you read a poem that says... Uh, you know as I floated down the river I thought of my love you know you're like oh I get that you're remembering someone you loved how sad and then you read mine and it's just squiggle 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 I don't get it 
at least then you're creating a notion of perspective because in my lived life exactly speaking to what you're describing here that's so important to me yeah. is, is is perspective like we are gonna die that's the only thing that bonds us together that's a beautiful thing people in the majority of all time place have had it a thousand times worse than i have it how do i deal with that and still express my concerns that's a huge thing about what my work is about uh let me know when you get the answer because <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah yeah never yeah exactly yeah yeah when i'm in the ground yeah 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 um Sorry. No, no, no. It's fascinating. <laughs> I was just worried we could go down, really down a, a hole there. Let's that, do it. <laughs> David, let's go. Deep, let's turn yeah. it into a, a metaphysical podcast. We'll have to do a part two of the right. conversation. Oh, anytime. What I'd like to just talk about briefly at the end here is... Um, are we at the end? We are, unfortunately. You're breaking my heart. I know. It's really... Um, <laughs> we're not at the end of anything. We are purely at the beginning. At of, the beginning of yeah, the end. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about the live events and stuff, I just feel yeah. it's vital, I think, that we talk about how sort of underpinning so much of what you do is uh, collaboration. Yeah, um, yeah. And not only collab- you collaborating with other people, but you sort of smashing other artists together, around, mainly around Europe. Mm. Well, I know it does go wider, wider than that, but you, with the European Poetry Festival, maybe we'll just talk very briefly about the importance that you, that you see in collaboration and now we've touched on um, you admitting that you've driven yourself into the ground by working too much and like trying to prove yourself. Not to in poetry, people, but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah this idea of um, why you feel that collaboration is so important to your work, but also to um, avant-garde writing in general. Yeah. Um, I think I suppose I was always confused that I was the only one who was interested in collaboration in a medium that is inherently based in solitude you know but then it's based in solitude in a way that i'm confused with the way people speak about it the problem of other minds you know in philosophy or whatever it's the fundamental problem of all existence i don't know what other people are thinking i don't, I don't know you're not a robot right now david there's no way to be inside of other people's you're nodding because you you are an automaton <laughs> this is an issue that's what communication really is we all know that most of the time when people are communicating they're not listening to each other We all know that we read body language, blah, blah, blah. We've read all these articles about this stuff. The reality is that we are a a pack animal. We are like a collective. We have a collective mindset. When we're isolated, we feel bad about being alive. Poetry is an engagement with an internal and personal language experience. That's what it fundamentally is. So to me, collaboration is a way of mediating that. It's an addition. It's not to replace writing. Writing is a a lonely task no matter no matter what your writing is fundamentally like existences you're born alone you die alone you don't share a mind so to me collaboration is a way of like literally and clumsily overcoming that and what i've learned through doing it by accident in these camarada pairs where i pair people often have never met each other before and i ask them to create a work with no criteria apart from a time limit what I find is that the very nature of collaboration removes attention from the kind of practice that the poets seem to think that their work represents who they are. So they write a very certain kind of way because that's who they are. That's how they see themselves. And when they collaborate, they'll get up and do wacky stuff. They will go full weird po, as I like to say, <laughs> because they're doing it live. It's almost never in print. And that's not an accident, even though most people think it is. 
and they're sharing responsibility. I always like to say they can blame the other person. Yeah, maybe this is just a personal opinion or cheeky of me, but a lot of the people I've invited who have like very formal print practices, the work they do live with their collaborative partners better. It's freer. Mm. It's more entertaining. It's more alive. So collaboration has a methodological purpose. It's inspiring. It's, it's collective. It's human. It's fun. It's engaged. It changed the tenor of events. It also has a change in the way people write, but it's also about responding to how weird it is that poets and writers don't really collaborate when almost every other art form does. Yeah, it's been nice hearing several poets that you've invited sort of say almost apologetically, I'm really surprised to have been invited to take part oh. in in that they probably don't view their own work as being particularly sort of stage-based, you know, or, you know, some sort of performative aspect to their work and it's really nice that the, the collaborative aspect can draw that out of them or it doesn't draw that out of them it just forces them to be part of it and often that's enough isn't it you just need the impetus to get up and perhaps have the shield of someone else standing next to you or laying down on the floor or jumping around on yeah. the table or crying or crying or was riding around in one of those scissor lift things? Was that a rich mix last time? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Someone built their own yeah, walking poem and walked yeah. around with a little castle of it too. And Yeah, I think that's the thing. It, it is a protection in a way, but why not? I mean, there's no, no doubt that collaboration has been a gateway to my own and many other people who, who've been involved in the Enemies Project and the European Poetry Festival towards doing a more engaged version of a live poetry, which we have a responsibility to do, I think. And that, to me, that means something very specific. Again, it's like a version of what we're doing with the book. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's been an amazing accidental exploration. And how of long has the European Poetry Festival been going on for now? Um, we've done two, so the third year will be next April. Yeah, And coming up very shortly in London is the first Nordic Poetry Festival. It is, Which indeed. is an extension of the European Poetry Festival, is it? It is. Or it's an experiment, a, yeah. yeah, and it is. It's a sister festival, yeah. definitely. Um, because really, I got I got asked to do that. Um, a lot of the poets who had come from Scandinavia and the Nordic region really enjoyed it, and I'd been invited to organise similar things across Scandinavia over the last three or four years. So I'm really open to doing other kind of sister festivals mm -hmm. like that with different regional specificities. Yeah. And just because the, this is uh, this particular event is looming now, yeah. and especially by the time this episode goes out, so maybe we yeah. should just. Um, break away from uh, actually having a proper conversation and just go into Sounds a bit good. of spiel. Sounds Let's have good some dates me. and uh, venues and stuff so oh, people yeah. know where they can check that out. Thank you. Yeah, so the festival starts on October 11th at Burley Fisher Books mm -hmm. and then has a second event in London, October Saturday 12th, Saturday night at the Rich Mix for the Big Camarada, which I'm very happy that you'll be involved Thank in. Thank you very much. David, it's fantastic with your experience of living in Norway and so forth. And then we'll go on a mini tour. We'll go to Norwich at the National Centre for Writing, who have been an amazing supportive partner of, all, of a lot of my events, actually, and these festivals. On Monday, the 14th of October, and then 15th, we go to York to the Jorvik Centre. Oh, fantastic. Which yeah, is yeah. so funny <laughs> and so good. And I know that all the poets 
probably won't get around to hearing this podcast so they won't know that it's this giant beautiful like in joke for me that I bring all these like avant-garde Scandinavian poets and I take them to the Jorvik Center where it smells like sour milk and I've actually booked the ride so they don't know when the when the reading finishes I put them on the, the oh, mechanical yeah, yeah, yeah. ride so that oh it just makes me glow inside and then we come back for one last reading in Kingston upon Thames where I teach at the universities as part of the Writers Center which I run down there too so yeah it's short it's like a burst there's like 30 poets coming over from all over the Nordic region there's some incredible work happening up there it's going to be really fun and all the events are free so I really cannot recommend highly enough that you go and check out some of these events if you can um, or if not try and find some of the recordings that will no doubt be made if you can't make it down to any of the events links to everything we've been talking about today including links to uh, Stephen's work which we haven't really touched on in terms of where you can find things but I'll stick around it'll be in the outro possibly so we're talking about things I haven't yeah, even you haven't thought done about yet. <laughs> yeah you have to project yourself they will into be, the future they will be in the they outro will exist. Yeah, they will exist yeah, yeah. make it happen yeah you can find those links in the episode description people that are listening it's the end it's the end it's thank the god end. it's the beginning of the end Thanks again um, for having me. No, you're, Congratulations so I've been really again. looking forward to talking to you. Proper, I feel the like, same. I mean, we talk fairly we do, often now, but we do. But it's nice to. Um, I mean, that's the whole point of getting the microphones was to pin people down for an hour. Yeah. And really, um, I'm glad you're back in London. Yeah, me too. We're going to finish with a reading, please. So this is um, a poem from a book I published this summer, 2019, called "I Stand Alone by the Devils and Other Poems on Film," by Broken Sleep Books. Thanks to them for suffering under my work. American Werewolf in London. Release August 21st, 1981, director John Landis. And there's an epigraph by Cheshwaf Miwash, a name I love saying properly because most people don't, as if to signify they were not quite dogs. The moon has long been associated with that which can't be had, I can assure you this realization is not in the least bit amusing. You cannot judge the past from the present and the question being asked should follow the question of why you are attempting to do so. The slaughtered lamb is your childhood bedroom where your cousin got fresh with you and you liked it. The last watch is American. It has not humor enough to see dogs become wolves. Americans won't listen. Stay on the road, keep clear of the moors, we said. The English wolf treated this way wares. We cut to David's wolf eyes. He is running the forest floor, hunting your deer. Then we cut to Jenny Agutter, as all English nurses. She hand feeds. You have to eat. The bad dreams in hospital cannot hide friend's speech as soundless. You make Jack share your shame. He keeps saying limbo. Dr. Hirsch is the hero. He'll say, you'll have dueling card scars to boast of. They say madmen have the strength of ten. And if I survived Rommel, I'm sure I can survive. But you don't listen. The sad and the wolf lie together like young lovers, while the young are rubbish lovers like American tourists. Lips seem to shrink. The clouds hold a faint silver smell. Green bursts patch on a map of London. Jenny Agutta is still waiting for your return from work. Hollow is the moor, 
where there lies now the dead friend, half-eaten, rotting in the distracted minds of the living. Stay on the road, keep clear of the moors, we said. You stuck around. Grab yourself an ice-cold Capri Sun from the fridge as a reward. I hope the traffic noises and squeaky chair didn't annoy you too much. I also hope that you enjoyed the conversation. I certainly enjoyed recording it. It's a conversation I've been wanting to record for a while. Um, So I'm glad we both found the time. We're both pretty busy at the moment. I'm a bit disappointed looking back that I left the issue of class slip by, but I suppose... That's been spoken about enough in the series previously and Stephen and I wanted to discuss other things. But I regret not pushing him more on the idea of recognising issues around class and ignoring them. Even if ignoring them is based on providing platforms and spaces that counteract these things. Perhaps we should all be a bit more outspoken about these things, I don't know. For more from Stephen, go over to his website, stephenjfowler.com. If I started now to list all of his work, we'd be here for another hour, so I'll allow you to go and seek that out for yourselves. One thing I would check out, though, is Stephen's appearance on episode 12 of Matthew Blunderfield's Scaffold podcast, in which he talks about a residency he did at an architect studio and what it means to attempt to write future-facing poetry. It's a really fascinating discussion. I'll be back before the end of 2019 with episode 123, I still have no idea who will be joining me, though. That's a deliberate choice now. I'm trying to not allow the podcast to take control of my life too much, so I'll just be seeing who interests me and who is available near at the time. That's quite enough for today. Be good to yourselves. I'll speak to you soon.